South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Very good Sunday morning to you wherever you happen to be listening. Uh, San Antonio, Valley, anywhere down South Texas, up in the hill country, over toward Houston, or gosh, if you're listening on the Internet, it might be a lot further away than that. But uh, glad to talk to you. Glad to be in live, so to speak, this morning once again. Over in uh, the Georgia area last week, the big international gift market that we go to twice a year. Plus then spent a little time up north of Atlanta and saw one of the most incredible botanical gardens I've ever seen. But that's a whole other story. And uh, what we're here for this morning is to talk about your story and what is uh, you know, what's concerning you <laughs> and anything we can do to make that better. And uh, uh, looks like, I believe, uh, did I write this down right, Don? We've got Gary and Clint and Mike, or is it Larry and Clint and Mike? Yeah, Gary and Clint and Mike will be my first three callers, and Gary's first in line. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning. How can I help today? Okay, I've got a problem with my avocado tree. It's about okay. three years old, and it's about a trunk. At the, it's about two and a half inches in diameter at the base, about six feet tall. And I've been having problems with the leaves curling up and then the edges and some of the tips turning brown and falling off or crinkly like it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if I should uh, water it more or water it less or put shade over it or what to do. Because I have a – I started out with a shade canopy, a solid one on there, but then it – you know, got so hot underneath it, could, heat couldn't get out. So sure. I switched to a shade cloth, and it helped a little bit, but it's still really hot there. So I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Well, I I think it's probably a pretty simple thing. Is this a grafted tree that you purchased, or is this one that you grew from a seed? It's one I got at Phoenix. Okay, very good. So it's a good tree. I suspect that what you need to do is water more thoroughly when you water, but water less often. What you're describing is just uh, just root damage is all it is. Avocados are very sensitive to staying too wet, and of course it's not the water that hurts. It's that the water, if it's, they stay too wet, then that drives all the oxygen out of the soil, and that's what hurts the roots. That's what creates those brown edges and crinkle leaves and things dropping. So the thing to remember is that at any one time, you will never put too much water on that tree. When you water it, you really need to flood it, but don't water it again until you can stick your finger in the ground right at the base of the tree and it's dry a good inch deep. Um, it's and This is what I always tell people. There's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. And I think you probably, when you water, you need to water a little bit more thoroughly, but then it may be a while before you have to water again. How long is going to depend on how windy it is, how hot it is, is and how sunny it is I would sure leave the shade cloth in place that's going to help it get through the summer Uh, the one other thing I would do is the next time it needs a thorough watering add a little bit of super thrive or add a little bit of garret juice to that water to stimulate some you know good additional root growth on your tree Uh, the leaves that are curled the leaves that have the brown edges those leaves are not going to change and you may have a few more of them fall off but you'll know you've got the problem under control 
when you see new growth at the top of the tree at the end of the branches and those leaves should come out perfectly normal and beautifully green but it's you know with the kind of heat we're having right now it may be six weeks before you see very much of a change but um, so like I say I think all you need to do other than adding a little super thrive and or garret juice is when you water perhaps water more thoroughly and do it with a hose or a bucket don't rely on a drip system or something but then wait a little bit longer wait until you can stick your finger down in right at the base of the tree and that soil's dry a couple of knuckles down then it's time to water very thoroughly again does that make sense okay that seems right well i've been watering it yesterday the day before i watered it real you know i stuck a rod into it and it was went all the way down real deep in there real easy pretty easily so i guess it's pretty wet in there well it it just um if you've got good soil and you probably do uh, the soil's going to be loose. The question is, uh, you know, how much moisture is in there, and your good old index finger is going to tell you a whole lot more than that rod will. And don't rely on these so-called moisture meters. They actually don't even measure water. They measure what we call the electroconductivity that's based on the salt in the soil. So uh, just use your index finger when it feels dry a couple of inches deep. It's time to water thoroughly again, and um, your tree should turn around. Uh, this doesn't sound like a permanent problem or a serious problem to me. Does it help any to like when it's really hot in there underneath? Like it gets up to about 110 degrees. Should I, will I spray water on the leaves and everything? Will that help any? And that will help a good deal, but I wouldn't do it in the middle of the afternoon because every water droplet can act like a little magnifying glass and burn the leaf underneath oh, yeah. it. But morning and evening, that would be a great thing to do for the tree. Spray down the foliage and the trunk and the limbs, um, and you'll help your tree a great deal. Okay, then. Well, I'll try that, and hopefully it'll survive for me. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it will. But like I say, don't expect much change for some time. And because of the root damage, it's probably going to look worse before it looks better. But it will definitely get better. So, uh, you know, watch that watering, little Super Thrive, and uh, your tree will turn around for you. Okay, well, I hope so. Thanks for the advice. Okay. It's always always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Uh, next in line is Clint. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. It's not like he's having better luck on his than I am. <laughs> well, if he's got one that's got a, a trunk that's two and a half inches in diameter, I'd say, because uh, I know Fanny doesn't have anything that big, so he's had that one a while, and he's doing a good job of growing it, that's for sure. Well, I need to go down there and get a little of that good juju off him and rub it on my trees. <laughs> you. you and me both. On the Cornwater tea, uh, you usually let it set overnight. What's the maximum time you want to let it set? Probably 48 hours. Uh, you let it stay much longer than that, and, uh, and you know, you start getting some anaerobic activity setting in, and it starts, you know, it's on its way to making corn whiskey instead of corn water tea. Uh, so, I'd, you know, overnight is enough to get that trichoderma activated, which is what you want to do. Uh, but if it sits for a couple of days, that's not really going to hurt anything. Okay. Um, what would be the minimum hours so that you would think would be good? Uh, probably 12 hours. Four hours at least, okay. Yeah, 12, 12 hours, literally, literally overnight. Overnight. Yeah. I'll soak my stuff overnight, uh, hit it in the morning, then hit it again that evening and stuff, and then pour the rest of it out and on around the roots and stuff. That sounds like a great plan. Sounds like a very it good would, plan. It would, have hurt, would it dilute it too much if I need to 
bring that volume back up to stretch it out through the trees or no no all the water that you put in there uh beyond what it takes to activate the trachoderma the water is just a carrier you can use a little bit or you can use an awful lot all you're doing is spreading that those trachoderma um little fungi you're just spreading them out and soaking them into the soil so how much water you mix with it is totally immaterial okay and the cracked corn you get at the feed store, does that qualify? Uh, I don't know if they use stone ground on that or not. Or how they would well, it, it is okay, but here's the deal. Um, activating the trichoderma is pretty much a matter of surface area. And cracked corn obviously has more surface area than whole corn, but it doesn't have nearly as much surface area as cornmeal. So cracked corn is okay, but cornmeal is better. And, uh, you know, it, it just anything you can do to reduce the particle size is going to reduce the surface area for the water to, you know, get to work and get the trichoderma started. So um, if you have a way to grind it yourself, um, you can take cracked corn and just grind it down a little bit further. But um, uh, it's, you know, cracked corn is going to be, you know, whole ground, so to speak, because it's still got all the, you know, the outer coating of the corn and the germ, you know, that's in the center that represents a little embryo. They don't take any way, take any of that away when they make the cracked corn. All they're doing when the cracked corn, doing cracked corn, is they're grinding it. They're just not grinding it as much as they would to make cornmeal. Okay. Now, a different uh, subject, my, um, my Mary Washington asparagus uh how long mm-hmm. does that take before i can start doing that and i planted it in a straight row is that good to do or should i put it side by oh, side make, or? makes makes no difference whatsoever you just want that plant to have a little bit of room to spread out and you want to be able to uh get up to it where you can pick the spears of asparagus without trampling over some others so uh, <laughs> excuse me it can be a single row it can be a double row it can be a zigzag row um, it can be circles. It doesn't really make any difference at all how you do it. Uh, it just needs to have room to grow and spread out. And, uh, of course, it takes a good deal of water this time of year. Uh, you want to fertilize it pretty regularly because the bigger and stronger that plant is, the longer you'll be able to harvest spears from it next January, February, when it starts growing out down in your area. And remember, when you start harvesting, you harvest every single shoot that comes out. Some people say, well, I'm going to harvest some and let some grow. Don't do that. The plant will stop producing new shoots. Uh, You harvest every single shoot that comes out. Some of them will be bigger. Some of them will be smaller. And how long you continue to harvest will depend on the age and, you know, how thick the plants are. Once your plants are really really well established you can probably you know harvest for eight or ten weeks uh, and you'll get a lot of asparagus from it the first year or two or three uh, first year you may just harvest for two or three weeks the second year you may harvest for a month or six weeks and then as your bed becomes really well established um, you can harvest for a more extended period of time you just have to kind of guess when to stop and let them grow out and start putting all the energy into growing for next year you said that's around the January time frame? Well, it depends on the weather, and we all, 
we all know how undependable that is. I, I got about six inches of lightning right last night, not a drop of rain. But um, uh, the asparagus will sprout as soon as it starts to warm up. I've harvested asparagus as early as January. The past couple of cold winters, it's been March before it really started coming up. Good deal. Mine's just kind of looking like a dill plant surviving the heat right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but keep feeding, keep watering. The bigger, the thicker, the stronger it is, the longer you'll be able to harvest uh, your good old edible asparagus next spring. Good deal. All right, well, I appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate your call. Get out and have a good Sunday, Clint, we'll talk again. Mike, I've got to get a break in here. You will be up next. I get to talk about Medina. Love talking about Medina agriculture and all the fine products they make. Uh, just sitting here looking uh, at one of their newer products, uh, their microbe mix, uh, beneficial microbes, they call it. And uh, it's it's going to be a, a great product. I've, I'm going to talk to Stuart about how all he recommends using it. I think it's going to be a great thing to add to compost tea. I think it's going to be a great thing to add to your compost pile. Probably going to be a good thing to add to your soil. Um, especially if you've done something like solarize and you need to get lots of microbes back in there in a hurry. But it's just kind of typical of Medina. They're always looking for newer products that they can introduce that will help you garden better working with nature, not against nature. And, of course, remember, in this heat, it's especially important to fertilize your plants, whether you're using their great dry uh, Medina products, the uh, grow and green, either form of it, or whether you're using the liquid has to grow, or the great liquid fish blend, and by the way, that's available in quarts now as well as gallons. Just find products from Medina that will help you garden better naturally. Check out MedinaAg.com for a full list of their products. Visit a good nursery garden center that believes in quality when you want to find Medina products. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning out there. Looks like my next three callers are going to be Mike and David and Vivian. Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. How you doing, sir? Oh, it's a beautiful morning out there. Sounds like uh, your trip east listening to you yesterday was uh, pretty nice, huh? It was, well, you know, it's always nice to just get out and see and do something different. Uh, people think, oh, man, it'd be a lot of fun to go to the gift market. But 9 million square feet of showrooms translates to 200 acres, which translates to walking several miles a day, stopping and standing, which, you know, it's it, it's always fun, but it's not a vacation. But anyway, we took a couple of days to actually do something different, and that's when we got to see that beautiful botanical garden. So, yeah, it was it was a very good trip. Glad to be home, though. Yeah. Yeah, I heard you talking about it yesterday, and I know it's all business-related. Uh, yeah, it's starting to look like uh, 2011 around here, Bob. But anyway, um, I uh, couldn't couldn't, you know, Life happens, and I couldn't get in town to your nursery, so uh, I got my wife to pick up some uh, uh, tomato starts mm-hmm. at, the, at the grocery, and, you know, I usually start everything from seed. And right. <clears throat> outside of all of our favorites, I can't get anybody to tell me what I've got here, Bob. It's a cherry. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Solanum lipersicium. Lipersicium. Okay. And all it says on the label is cherry, and you know that co- that covers a pretty broad. Uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty broad. Oh yeah, and, we. And, and, you know the world's worst source of information, Bob. I looked it up twice. 
One tells me it's sweet, it's sweet 100. The other tells me it's a large cherry. So, you know, I, you know, with, with five hungry, you know, tomboy grand granddaughters, they, uh, I, I'd like to know what I've got and for myself. Well, here's here's the story. Uh, the name that is on there is the generic genus and species name of a small fruited tomato. If they right. were, if they knew, then after that they would put, and it goes in quotation marks. If you're a botanist, they would put the variety of cherry, which might be sweet 100, which might be sun gold, which might be black cherry, which might be, uh, you know, the list just oh, goes yeah. on and on. Yeah. If when when you get to looking yeah. at heirlooms, you could be looking at any one of a hundred different ones, and right. there until it produces, there's absolutely no way to know which one. Uh, the good news is yeah, right. that yeah. yeah, the good news is that every cherry tomato that I know of is a heavy producer. Uh, the heaviest producing of the yellow cherries, in my experience, is sweet or is a sun gold. The heaviest producing of the uh, red cherries is probably sweet 100, but they're all good producers. We get one, one of our growers uh, has one that they simply call large red cherry. Uh, they don't know what it is. Nobody knows what it is, but it's an outstanding plant, so uh, uh, it doesn't taste any better just knowing what the name is. So I wouldn't hesitate to plant them. I mean, if you get an opportunity, oh, no. pick up some others. But uh, without a you know thousand dollar genetic DNA test, there's no way to tell you know number one whether this is a name variety or whether it is just an unnamed hybrid because. Uh, uh, if your cherry and and you've had this happen, you you've had your cherry or your tomatoes, cherries especially, uh, produce seed, and every now and then one of them falls down. But if your cherry tomato produces a hundred tomatoes and every one of those tomatoes has a hundred seeds in it, you've got you know ten thousand. Uh, new genetically unique Different. tomato plants. So, um, yeah, every year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there, there's no way to know what you have, but the good news is, 99% chance it's going to work out fine to uh, feed the, that hungry, hungry family. Okay, Bob. So I, I kind of been, you know, kind of been, uh, you know, thinking about this a couple of days. So that basically puts puts the gore pretty straight then right mm-hmm. i mean as yep. far as him just putting cherry on there yeah yeah there's nothing okay. that requires okay. a person to you know put a name and for those of us right. in the business we of course always try to uh produce put an accurate name on there but you know even for us what happens is a customer comes in and pulls the tag up out of one pot reads it and then oh, accidentally sure. sticks it back down in the wrong pot so uh it's just anything i've ever bought from you you know has always you know directed you as to what you got i guess yeah. that's what i guess that's what confuses me then when you're growing for a large grocery chain uh i guess that kind of Kind of well, yeah, you know, <laughs> some of us some of us believe in helping people; others just believe in selling yeah. to people. So well, it's sure. uh, and you know, and you know, Bob, there's actually a couple of people working at a couple of those places that uh-huh. know a little bit about it. And uh, I was just uh, kind of floored that nobody could. Well, no, I won't say floored. No, there's no such thing. But uh, nobody could tell me. And I said, well, you know, it's Bob. And, 
so well, kinda, the one clear. one personal thing I would tell you, Mike, is you know several years ago we had a Home Depot open up two blocks down the street from us. Oh yeah, and I've been there many, many we. Times. Yeah, we had so many people come in and say, has that store hurt your business? Has that store hurt your business? And I tell them, no, it's helped our business because now people have something to compare us to. And anybody that goes in there to buy something and then comes down to buy from us, they'll come back to us next time. So I've got no problem with people selling plants, but I just... uh, I'm just sorry that more people don't realize that there there oh, yeah. is a difference. So it's uh, I, I wish yeah, they'd continue I, selling lumber and leave the plants to us. Oh yeah, yeah. I being an old carpenter, I used to make all three of my work. My wife was a nurse right there across the street. I used to oh, yeah. Home Depot, and then I'd hit your place. But uh, well, yeah, we... yeah. And as far as seed, I, I think I told you I got was suppo- what was supposed to have been Lemon Boy. A couple of years ago, I think it was Lake Valley or one of the kind of offerings. And Bob, it is the best yellow producing cherry. And I've uh, never had any. I never had much luck with Sun Gold. I've told you uh-huh. before. I don't know yeah. why. You know, and my, well, I'm under the everybody's gardens. Yeah. Yeah, it's for me. I can't grow uh, uh, Roma tomatoes. I mean, they get no matter what I do. I have problems with Romas, whether, you know, no matter which one it is. But I grow the heck out of most every other tomato out there. And it's just everybody's garden is its own little microclimate. And that's why I think it's so important to keep records of what you've grown. In your case, you don't know what that tomato is, but I sure hope you save seed from it and replant it every year because uh, oh, that's... Oh, I do. The, the, yeah. the, the two, you know, the Juliet, you know, that are round and as big as, darn near big as golf balls now, mm-hmm. and the yellow ones, both, uh, the flavors just, and I've heard you say that, you know, they may get better, they may get worse, and I mean, mm-hmm. I'm going on probably eight, ten years on the Juliet. Yeah. And, well, uh, you can three or four now on the yellows, but yeah, if if you yeah. share the seeds from that yellow one with your friends and they say what is this, uh, tell them oh it's called Mike's special. That's it's a real unique Mellow variety yellow. of tomatoes. So <laughs> now you can uh, you can name it anything you want. Nobody can argue with you. So uh, anyway, keep up the good work, and uh, I'll look forward to our next visit. All right, Bob, thanks for clearing that up. I appreciate it, sir. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the call. All right, uh, David and Vivian, got to get a break in here, and then you guys will be up next. Looks like I get to talk about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. And, you know, when you have a challenging year, let me tell you what, Sam and his crew get quite, quite busy because there are things happening out in the garden, happening in the landscape, happening to your grass that, Quite frankly, we haven't seen it in a lot of years, and uh, I know it's frustrating when you're not real sure what the problem is, and uh, you really want to take care of it. Of course, the opposite is true. Sometimes things are just doing exceptionally well, and you're saying, wow, I wonder what I did so right here. Well, I tell you, Sam is the person who can come out to your home, to your landscape, to your ranch, whatever, and talk to you about what's going on. If you're looking for advice on controlling a problem, if you're looking for advice on uh, where to plant something, that's what he's done for over 30 years now, and everything he does is organic. That's why I'm happy to talk about him, but he has literally thousands of people that rely upon him for help, advice, and information. This company is called Green Grow Organics. Uh, if you would like to have somebody that you could call upon to come answer questions for you at your home, well, you really ought to consider Green Grow Organics. Check out his website. It's greengroworganics.com. Uh, look at the program. If it looks good to you, call and set up a conversation. 
consultation. Be sure you understand any charges up front. But uh, a lot of people have them, you know, come out once a month. Some people have them come out quarterly. Some people just call them as needed. But when you need somebody with 30 years experience and someone you know is going to recommend organic products and things, you remember Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. If you need the number, 599-5565 for Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Uh, looks like next in line is going to be uh, David and then it'll be Vivian. Good morning, David. You're doing? I'm good. How are you today? I'm sweating. I'm sweating. Do you believe that? Oh, I believe anything you tell me. <laughs> I can tell in your voice that you're off to a good start. Yes. Uh, I uh, well, I thought it was going to rain last night and thunder and lightning and all that. And I guess it must have rained about two minutes and that will see it. Well, I hear some places around got a little bit better rain, but if it rained for two minutes, that's two minutes longer than it rained at my house. But sure got lots of nice lightning and thunder, but, uh, man, we need that rain badly. But I'm just glad to know, you know, it can still blow up. It can still happen. I've seen summers like last summer when that big old high-pressure dome just sat down on top of us, and nobody got a drop anywhere for several months. It's uh, it's somewhat encouraging to me to see these, even though they're small cells moving through like they did last night. Uh, I just hope you and I are under under the next time that happens. <laughs> hope we're under the right one yeah. and get some good moisture out of it. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I, uh, can I? Uh, is it too late to plant? Uh, uh, oh man, those long things, long little long hairy fuzzy things. Uh, okra. <laughs> okra. Can I plant okra already? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You can plant okra. Uh, it'll go all the way up until it freezes in the fall. It's uh, You're not going to have as much time to pick as if you'd planted in May, but uh, it loves the oh, heat. Okay. Uh, it, it, it'll yeah. take the heat a whole lot better than you or I would. So you plant your okra this afternoon. It should be up and growing in about five or six days, and about uh, four to six weeks from now you'll be picking okra. If As long as you keep it watered and fertilized, it'll, be, it'll continue to produce right up until freezing weather so uh, nothing wrong with planting whether it's your first or whether you know you just want to have more uh, I wouldn't hesitate to plant it this afternoon I know you can if you want to get a little head start some nurseries have plants but in all oh. honesty it grows so easily from seed uh, yeah. and you can buy a whole package of seed for what you'll pay for one or two plants uh, I just grab you a packet of whichever variety you like and soak it for about oh 20 minutes or so put a little seaweed little garret juice in there soak it uh for 15 20 minutes and get that seed in the ground all righty sounds good gotta put the medina on the on the ground too yes sir yes sir i i always put down some uh, dry granular fertilizer like medina whenever i'm uh getting ready to plant and i mean it would have been nice and if i you know not too early to go ahead and put your medita down where you're going to be planting your broccoli and cauliflower and things uh, a month from now so uh while you're planting your okra just get ready for those fall crops because there are going to be times going to be here before we know it oh okay i had another question but uh, it, it skipped my mind so <laughs> nice <talking to> you. <laughs> it's nice to talk to you write them down next time so we'll have them in front of us <laughs> <laughs> right, you have <laughs> 
Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. I believe Vivian is next, and then it'll be Mike. Good morning, Vivian. Good morning. Good morning. Question about sawdust. Okay. Um, we acquired like a lawn and leaf bag full of sawdust from a carpenter. Uh-huh. Okay. And um, my husband has a wonderful compost bin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been reading some. Some people say some of the reads I've made just say put it in. Some say don't put it in. What do you suggest? Well, first of all, ask your carpenter friend. Be sure it's 100% non-treated wood because uh, even though they don't put arsenic in the treated wood anymore, they put some pretty nasty chemicals in there, and you don't want to be introducing those into your landscape or into your garden. But as long as he's just you know cutting, whether it's pine or cedar or whatever else, as long as it's not treated wood, uh, then that sawdust will ultimately make good compost now you're getting a hundred percent carbon material there so uh, it's going to take longer to break down you would never want to work it into the soil but you could use it as is for a mulch on the surface or you can put it in your compost pile mix in a little bit of what we would call green material like leaves or grass clippings or things like that and uh you know, let it break down, let it compost. Uh, and like I say, if you want to use it for mulch, you can use it just as is, or you can use it any time. If you put it in the compost pile, it'll take a few months for it to really break down and make good compost, but uh, certainly shouldn't go in the landfill. That's good material. long as it's not treated, that's good material, and it will be very good for your garden given the right conditions. Perfect. So my other question is, we're up in New Braunfels where there's a lot of clay soil. Mm-hmm. Right. And could I put that compost or that sawdust around the base of the foundation of the house? Sure. Absolutely. To keep, to keep the moisture in. Yep. That that will help. Um, if you wanted to do something that would be just a little bit better, uh, buy a bag of compost. It doesn't necessarily have to be the best compost out there. It could be, you know, something cheap you get from the box store for that matter. But mix that in with your sawdust because that's going to help your sawdust hold the moisture better. Just just a pile of sawdust, you, you put some water on it and 90% of the water is just going to run off. Uh, but if you mix a little bit of compost in with it, then it will help get more moisture into the soil and it'll help keep the moisture in the soil, which is the uh, best thing you can do for a, a slab foundation uh, when we've got hot, dry weather like this. So yeah, it's fine to use it around uh, the slab, but it would be better if you mix a little bit of compost with it first. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're the man. You're the lady. Hugh, thank you for the call this morning. You get out and enjoy. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you, Vivian. Bye. Ah, Next in line is Mike. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning. Morning, sir. Hey, I just have a quick question. Um, I live not too far from you. I'm on 46 near Highway 16. Okay. And when you look at, uh, you know, the natural fields that are out there along the side of the road, what is the kind of grass that is growing there? Is it switch, switchblade or blue? No, it's virtually virtually everything you're seeing out there, unless it's cultivated, it's going to be uh, KR blue stem, stands for King Ranch blue stem. And okay. um, it's, it's a dominant invasive grass that cattle don't really like. 
um, and it puts up those seed heads. It seems like it can be weather can be so horrible that every grass out there is dying, except your KR blue stem, and it's putting up seed pods and spreading. So uh, it's good in that it holds the soil in place. Um, I and some areas that I've done some experimental things. You're you're kind of right near the big ABK Albert Bessie Kronkowski State Natural Area out yeah, there, right in and. Around. Yeah, I, I, I have worked with those guys, and we compare notes about different experimental things we do to improve our properties. And I have found that uh, with some of the things that I'm doing on one of my big hilltops, uh, I've got my native grasses, my uh, oh, Cytos grandma, my curly mesquite, things like that. It's actually choking out the KR blue stem. But uh, it, it, it just, given the opportunity, it will do its best to take over. And like I say, it's good that it holds the soil in place. But an old rancher friend once told me, he said, you know, I think a cow would take a bite of that just about the day before it died of starvation. <laughs> so right. may, maybe well, it's good for some of the old longhorns and things, but it's not a desirable pasture grass. I'll put it that well, way. I don't have any cows, so I'm just uh-huh. looking for something to keep and hold the soil. I've noticed, I believe that's what I have. I have a little mm-hmm. field where I have some oaks in there mm-hmm. where it's where they're shaded for, you know, a lot of the day. Yeah. The grass is green underneath there. <laughs> and anywhere else where it's in the sun, it's all dry. Amen to that. Is when it rains, I mean, this stuff greens right back up. I mean, it just oh, yeah. turns green oh, and oh, yeah. real fast. So I'm well, looking for some of that to put in some other areas. I just needed to know the name of it. Well, that's what it is, and if you're looking for a seed source, um, I'd probably talk to Douglas King Seed here in San Antonio. Uh, you might talk to them. They actually have a hill country blend that is several different native grasses. And I'm just, I'm a big believer in diversity. You know, if you have nothing but oak trees on your property and you get a bad case of oak wilt, you've got no trees. Up north, if you had nothing but elm trees and Dutch elm disease moved through, you've got nothing left. So I like seeing no, what we call no monoculture. I don't ever want to see a field or a yard that has everything in it's 100% the same because who knows what the next plague, so to speak, is going to be. It's just going to wipe out everything. So I would encourage you to plant some curly mesquite, some Cytos grandma, some uh, native buffalo, some uh, some different things along with it. But uh, talk to Dean or talk to any of the good people down at Douglas King. Uh, there's also Native American seed, which is up in the hill country. They do some great blends as well. But uh, I, get your King Ranch blue stem, but but mix a few other things in with it, and you will have better grass long term. Okay, that's what I'll do. Bob, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure, neighbor. <laughs> Did you get any rain last night, or are you like me? You just got lightning and thunder. We, well, I'd, in the middle of the night, I heard the thunder coming, and I looked at the radar, and it's like, here it comes. Yeah. And <laughs> I went out to cover a few things that I'd left uncovered. And you, there was a few drops, and then, yeah. but then nothing. It just dissipated before it got there. Well, that's, that, that was my thought, my thought process. Here it comes. There it goes. Yeah, <laughs> so, there it went. But we're all waiting for the next one. So you have a great Sunday, and I appreciate the call this morning, Mike. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Bye. Certainly. Goodbye. All right, let's talk for a moment about Rhonda's Nature's Way. Once again, we're talking about the health of the gardener. 
And uh, let me tell you, life's just more fun. Gardening's more fun when you feel good. And I know a lot of I know a lot of people that keep going to the doctor, keep taking the same medication, and still feel kind of lousy and don't have the energy to do what they want to do. Well, there are lots of conditions that can cause that, and many, if not most, of those you can address with natural products, which actually treat the cause, not just the symptoms. I don't know anyone who is more knowledgeable than the staff over at Rhonda's Nature's as far as helping you figure out what's simply going to make your life better. Maybe you've got sleep issues, maybe you've got digestive issues, perhaps mood issues. They're natural ways to do that. Um, they're, they, Rhonda and her staff are really making an effort this time of year to help people understand how important it is to keep your immune system strong through the hot summer months. And uh, there, there are a lot of mental health issues that can and should be addressed with natural products. Uh, bottom line is, if you want somebody that knows natural supplements and knows natural remedies, you really need to go see Rhonda and her staff at Rhonda's Nature's Way. I take some things that support my immune system. I take some supplements that, uh, I don't know, just can make me feel better. And uh, and I, it's just, I don't know, I, as you can probably tell, I stay pretty active and I really enjoy what I do. And I give a lot of credit to that to Rhonda. Uh, if you're working out in the heat like I do most of the time, check out that Ultima. It's the best micronutrient uh, source, electrolyte source that I have found that really makes it enjoyable for me to drink the amount of water I need, but it's got no sugars in it, so it's not going to put the weight on you like those sports drinks do. Get by and see Rhonda. She closed today. You can't go on Sundays, but unless it's a major holiday, you will find them there to help you. Stores located in the shopping center there at the corner of I-10 and Callahan, kind of directly across the parking lot from Sprouts. You'll always be welcome, and you'll always find quality products at Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Looks like it's going to be Dave and Greg and Patrick are my next three callers. Dave is first in line. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bob. Listen, I just wondered, how do you measure that six inches of lightning? <laughs> by how far I jump off the mattress when it wakes me up out of a sound sleep when it's uh, so bright it's like a flash bulb going off outside. Anyway, that's, that's that's the best best answer I can come up with in in half a second. That's reasonable. <clears throat> I planted a small almond tree earlier this year, and I'm mm-hmm. gonna plant another peach tree. What's your favorite peach tree? And whereabouts do you live? Um, 1604 and 281 north. Okay, you're, so you're in about a 550 to 600 hour chill zone. Um, you're probably, your biggest, most productive peach is going to be a Sam Houston. Um, uh, and it's a freestone peach. It's a good, big, sweet, juicy peach. Uh, if you want a really sweet peach, uh, uh, some people actually call it a honey peach. Uh, you might try Melba. Melba's a little higher chilling, so when we have a longer or when we have a warmer winter, you won't get as much production. But um, if I was going to plant, well, you need to have at least two trees, but I think you probably already have uh, some there. But if I was going to add one highly productive peach, it'd probably be a Sam Houston in the area where you are. And what do you mean I might have two there? You mean another peach tree, or do I need to have two peach trees? 
you need to have two peach trees. Uh, they don't have to be the same variety. They don't have to be different varieties. But you're always going to get a lot more peaches if you have cross-pollination. So, um, how, how close together do they need to be? Oh, a couple of hundred feet. Okay. All right. And how, how far from that almond would you plant? How far apart would you plant the peach trees? Well, the, the almond's going to be basically a big bush. Um, I would probably plant my peach tree 12, 15 feet away from it. That's going to give you plenty of room to walk all the way around your peach tree, to walk all the way around your almond. Here's the, the problem with almonds is that they tend to bloom too early. Uh, almonds will certainly grow here. But uh, the majority of the years, they're going to start blooming too early. Then we're going to get a late freeze, and consequently, you'll have a you'll have a nice plant, but you're not going to get a lot of almonds produced from it. But every now and then, we'll have one of those years when we don't have any cold weather, because they may easily bloom in January. They're probably going to bloom in January here, and if we have a fairly warm winter, then you will get almonds. But um, just be prepared. I mean, the reason you don't see a lot of people growing almonds here, aside from the fact they take lots of water, which we don't have, but uh, it's just they bloom too early. They're beautiful trees. They're beautiful when they're in bloom. But um, how far? Go ahead. How far? How far apart should I plant the peach trees? I would say minimum of uh, fifteen feet. Uh, beyond that, you can you can spread them out as much as you like. But I like to be able to circle around a peach tree. I keep mine properly pruned, properly thinned, uh, so that that ultimately that tree is probably 12 feet wide or so. So if you're putting on on 15 foot centers, you've got a couple of feet to walk around each tree before you run into the next one. Does it make any sense at all to try to cover them so that I get more of the peaches than the birds? Yes, certainly does. A lot of people do that. Uh, what you cover them with is commonly called fruit tree netting. It's inexpensive, kind of looks like the old-fashioned ladies' hair net that our grandmothers wore. And uh, you simply, you know, drape it over the tree, and it's pretty effective at stopping the birds. Now, raccoons, squirrels, possums, things like that are another story, all of which will do their best to steal your fruit. Uh during producing season, I generally keep a live trap out in the shade just about all the time and uh, relocate them some miles away when they come around. But I, I've literally seen a peach tree that had uh, 200 peaches on it one night, and the next morning there were zero peaches out there, and it wasn't birds. It was, uh, it was the others. Uh, electric fence also works super well, and electric fencing is a lot easier than it used to be. We used to you know, use a bare wire that you had to be really careful in what it touched and what it didn't touch. And nowadays, uh, what we use is it's sort of like a polypropylene rope. It's just a thin cord, and uh, it's got the little copper wires embedded in it. You still have to use uh, non-conductive posts, and uh, you still don't want you know limbs leaning on it. But uh, it's a very, very simple system to install. And as long as the ground underneath it is moist, it'll stop those coons and possums 100% of the time. Okay, Bob, my raised garden bed is underway. I've got six inches coming up started. I'm also putting a water catchment system in my yard, and I need... Excellent. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. Uh, Dave, I'm sorry. Sorry I was concentrating so hard on answering your question. I wasn't watching the clock closely enough, but uh, we were talking peaches. Uh, what else do we need to talk about? 
uh, yeah, thanks for uh, not hanging up on me. I, I wasn't well, sure there. But. Well, you you can thank Don back at the studios. <laughs> I I don't I don't have those buttons to push here like I did when I was broadcasting over there. But it's kind of more fun sitting here. No offense, Don. It's kind of more fun sitting here looking out this window at uh, uh, pretty people and pretty plants. All right, thank you, Don. All right, Bob. I'm I'm putting in a water catchment, and I needed a little more headroom, so I'm having to excavate a foot or so to drop the tank down um, mm-hmm. and and I used that soil for the first six inches of the of the raised bed I mean and it's you, you could call it soil if you want to be really generous but I mean it's, just, <laughs> it's dry it's dry crumbly and when I tossed it out of the wheelbarrow into that it's like dust flew like ashes so mm-hmm. I mean am I am I much better served to purchase some really good potting soil to finish the job well it's uh, soils are composed of clay silt uh organic material every soil has different you know a different consistency just according to the proportions of the different things that make up soil you've got a good base to start with there but you have virtually no organic material in there and depending on the particle size, you may be looking at, you know, clay or something a little bit loamier. Uh, and what you might consider is that uh, I'd say what you have is probably good for a third of what you really want to have for good soil in those beds. So I'd be thinking about adding more compost. I'd probably add some lava sand. Um, I might add, uh, you know, a little bit of green sand, probably add some dry molasses, probably add a little bit of cornmeal. Nothing at all wrong with starting with that, but um, if you wait for that so to speak, primitive soil to turn into good soil is going to take years. Uh, if you speed it up by adding some good soil to it, uh, you'll grow a good garden your first year. So I would I would very definitely um, add something higher quality to both put on top of it and perhaps blend with it a little bit. Okay, and what um, what were the two things? Green sand, did you say? Uh, I would, uh, if you're going to put... You know, a, a little bit more bulkier material in addition to compost. Uh, I would definitely consider lava sand. I would consider that to be about the most important. If you want to add a little bit of green sand, you can. Not a whole lot. Uh, you don't need a whole lot. You can put as much as you want in there. I'd probably add a little bit of dry molasses. I'd probably add a little bit of cornmeal. I'd probably add a little bit of zeolite. But uh, those are all things that are going to be things that will give you a real good soil to start with, better than anything you can buy, actually, uh, already pre-blended. That's going to give you a real good soil. Keep in mind, it's going to kind of compact. It's going to drop down. So you're probably going to be adding some finished soil somewhere along the road as well. Okay, so if I put all of these additives in, could I use the the dirt that I'm digging out of my yard? Or should I just, I, you mentioned like a third. So yeah. if I just put a third in, um, uh, you said yes to what? I mean, I could use all that. That oh, absolutely. Add absolutely. I, I, uh, make use of it, but don't let that that material compose more than maybe uh, a third of your finished soil. Uh, I want to see two thirds mixture of compost and the other things we mentioned. One third the uh, native soil, shall we call it, and that's going to give you a real good blend. Okay, so can I use the native soil and mix all this? stuff in for the other two-thirds or do absolutely I soil? 
No, okay. absolutely. Mix this other stuff in, and you'll have better than any soil you could buy. And what kind of proportions? Um, again, the the green sand and things like that are going to be relatively small as far as the bulkiness of them. So you're basically going to have two-thirds compost, one-third of your native soil. Um, I, if we were going to you know, break it down exactly, it would probably be uh, 30% native soil, um, 60% compost, and then 10% the other materials that we're mixing in with it. So you've got to be a mathematician to garden as well. <laughs> you know, it, it used to be an old joke when I was in school. I had to take three semesters of calculus to get my bachelor's degree, and I had a chemistry teacher that every time you had to add two plus two, would say, use that calculus, man, use that calculus. Cause it, uh, but it's surprising, you know. I, and geometry and things like that were always fun, and I actually find that I'm using that building greenhouses and things sometimes. But you, you, you got to not be afraid of numbers if you're going to get through the world these days. But uh, one other thing I would tell you um, in in your water catchment, um, have you decided how you're going to go about distributing the water to the garden? How you're going to make use of the water that you collect? Um, well, I'm in addition to the four inch. The trenches with a four-inch pipe, I'm running a one-inch pipe along with it, and I'm going to put spigots in various places around the yard. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're, if you're using, if you're not hooked to, you know, a water source that has a pressure tank behind it, uh, there's a real interesting thing that you can use in combination, you know, say you've got a 5,000-gallon rainwater catchment tank or something like that. There's something they call an on-demand pump. And you, you know, it's something that that you hook onto the outlet from your from your storage tank, and it senses the water pressure. And when you turn on the tap, when you turn on the hose, whatever, it kicks in a pump that's going to pressurize your system. And uh, it's just a real, it, it's just something that makes it easy and. Uh, uh, you know, where you don't have to install a pressure tank, where you don't have to have a lot of fancy equipment. Just look into what they call on-demand pumps. I'm not going to take the time to try to fully explain it, but uh, anybody that sells rainwater catchment material probably can help you out there. And do keep in mind, because not everybody selling the products knows that uh, anything you use for rainwater catchment is free from sales tax. You mean the... The the equipment that I purchase is free from, the tank is free from sales tax? Yes, sir. Tank, if you're putting additional gutters on your home for rainwater catchment, that work is free from sales tax. It's uh, one of the things that the legislature has done right. Okay. And I am going to have a, a a pump sending water from the catchment because mm -hmm. someday it may be, it may be potable. Yeah, sure. And in that case, you'll need a UV filter. But but check out what is called an on-demand pump. I, like I said, I don't want to take a lot of time uh, here now All with right. other people waiting in line, but it uh, might be very useful for you to know. Thanks, Bob. You're sure welcome, Dave. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Uh, Greg is next in line. Good morning, Greg. Hey, Bob. I've called you about this before. It's about these xylosma. I've got a dozen of them, and mm -hmm. they got knocked down to the ground three years ago and so and then they grew up like crazy and they're probably seven by seven now and this happened and then i don't know if what i'm seeing now is from that rapid freeze we had last december or leftover from three years ago 
Mm-hmm. But this happened back in the spring where these things are growing like crazy, putting on new leaves, and all of a sudden one big branch will just shrivel up and die. And they're usually the right. larger diameter larger right. diameter ones. And so I cut them out, and the things have been growing like crazy. And lo and behold, over the last couple of days, a couple of them have had a couple branches just shrivel mm-hmm. up and die. And I was looking down at the base, and there's longitudinal splits in the bark. Yeah. The branches that have died, but mm-hmm. some of the healthy ones have this. The healthy ones have the same split. So I don't know if that's. What What do you think? Uh, that's freeze damage. When you see the splits, that's freeze damage. And sometimes the plants grow and overcome it. Uh, when we get into a highly stressful situation, like we've got going this summer, like we had last summer with the extreme heat and uh, very little moisture. Uh, it's it's kind of like if you've, heaven forbid, been in an accident or had a major surgery or something like that. Uh, it's going to take you a while to get all your strength back. And these plants that suffered in 21, suffered again in 23, uh, they're just not as strong and vigorous. It's going to take them a while to really get back to being robust plants once again. And then when you've got another stress thrown on top of it, uh, the plants will have some dieback. Uh, it's what we call the compensation point. Uh, it takes a certain amount of energy for a plant just to stay alive, and then anything that's left of, of above and beyond that, they can put into making new growth. When the compensation point gets super, super high, sometimes parts of the plants that were damaged, in this case by cold, they're just going to die out. The plant just simply can't support all of that. So, unfortunately, there's not a lot to do about it. Fortunately, most plants, including xylosmas, when they grow, they really grow. And uh, hopefully now we'll go for a few years before we see that kind of cold again. But uh, it's just going to be a fact of life, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do about it. That is probably not 2021 damage. That's probably from the severe cold we had last December uh, that you're seeing this dieback from. But uh, I'm going to tell you that probably two-thirds, maybe as much as 95% of your plants will survive, and the new growth that they put on that was not cold-damaged uh, will go ahead. And remember, you've got the root system, a big plant. The, the roots were not damaged by the cold in 21 or 23, either 1 or 22, whenever it was. Uh, so the plants can regrow much faster than they grew the first time. But it's not anything you're doing or have failed to do. It's It's residual cold damage. So just keep cutting back those dead branches. It's, yeah, the anything seems like. Oh, I know, I know, and it's not just uh, xylosma. It's pittosporum. It's uh, viburnums. Uh, in some cases, even loquats that we're seeing this in. But um, again, anything that that begins to shrivel and die, might as well take it out. It's not a disease. It's not anything that's going to spread. It's not anything you need to be super concerned about. But hopefully, you know, it will regrow quickly, and hopefully we'll have a little milder winter this time around. But it's not overwater, underwater, underfed, anything like that. Now, I'm not telling you you're not doing any of those other things, but the damage you're seeing is not from that, and that's not what causes splits. Just thing to remember on water is there's no such thing as overwatering, but there is watering too often. When you water, you need to really soak things thoroughly, but then you need to let the soil dry to the appropriate point before you soak them again. All right. Well, we'll keep cutting them back and see what happens. Uh, and pray for pray for a little warmer winter this time around. <laughs> and call me yeah. anytime you've got questions. Thank you. You're sure welcome. Thank you. All right, Patrick, hang on a minute. <coughs> Excuse me, need to get a break in here, and I get to talk about Wild Birds Unlimited, one of my favorite subjects because 
I do enjoy nature, not just birds, but just it's it's so much more fun if you have a beautiful yard that you can enjoy being out in. If you have kids or grandkids that you really want to get them involved in nature, there's just nothing like a good bird feeder with the appropriate food in it. And, you know, there are just lots of other good things. Wild Birds Unlimited has all those things you're looking for, quality bird feeders, many of them with lifetime guarantees, Uh, have hummingbird feeders that have the built-in ant stoppers. They've got some great price optics binoculars and things like that that once again you want to see a fascinated kid you get a you get a busy bird feeder give them some binoculars where they can really study it and all of a sudden you've got a young naturalist going there wild birds unlimited also has great gift merchandise each of the wild birds unlimited stores shops for their own gift merchandise and our store out there on northwest military at hebner they do some of the best work i've ever seen when it comes to bringing in quality beautiful things get by and see them and if you ever have a question they're happy to answer your question and well qualified to do it. Uh, 479-BIRD, 210-479-BIRD. That's the number for Wild Birds Unlimited. They're located in the center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner, kind of on the Northwest Military side, set well back from the road. So just when you go looking for them, that'll give you a little bit of a heads up of where to find them, and you'll be glad you did find Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Don tells me we've got some open lines for a change. They've been pretty pretty jammed up today, so if you're getting a busy signal, probably be a real good time to dial 210-599-5555. Next person in line to talk to is Patrick. Uh, good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Bob. Um, morning, sir. Hi. I've got a couple questions for you. I'm I'm not much of a gardener, um, but my mother was. She looked always advice. So, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not hereditary. The interest, uh, you know, comes naturally. But I don't know. I think our mothers and grandmothers had some very special magic that it takes us a long time to acquire. But uh, I'll do my best to help you down that road. Yeah, we can go with aspiring gardeners there. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I'm wondering if you can maybe help me with um, trying to rehabilitate some very non um and it's mainly for mental disease. Uh, uh, when I was a kid, we moved from North Carolina to, to uh, Texas, mm-hmm. and my dad helped helped me to liberate um, some. <laughs> Southern pine trees from from East Texas, right? Mm-hmm. You know, make more like North Carolina. Um, sure. Back, back in the nineties, and uh, about you know, um, we planted about ten of them, and and uh, about a about half of them are are still uh, still with us. Um, and uh, I don't know, one of them is doing really really good, and then there's uh, three that are kind of yellowing and. Uh, I just wanted to see if um, there were any soil amendments. I know you, you uh, hear you mentioned tick retreatment and uh, sure, green. Sure. Well, I will tell you, first of all, that when our San Antonio Botanical Garden wanted to import some East Texas trees for the portion of the garden they call uh, the East Texas area, they brought in several 
golly, 100,000 cubic yards of East Texas soil to plant those trees in. Yeah. Uh, your your slash pines, your loblolly pines, your black pines, your your things that you were used to in North Carolina or, you know, you would, you would be used to if you were in Houston or the piney woods of East Texas. Unfortunately, those trees do not like our hill country soil. The best things you can do for them would be a heavy mulch, would be regular applications of some form of iron. I used to recommend green sand real highly. Nowadays, I like zeolite much better. Uh, it just simply brings more micronutrients. Uh, but that heavy mulch is going to help. Thorough, deep watering is going to help. But the problem is, the bigger the trees get, the deeper the roots get into a soil that they don't like. So these trees are always going to struggle a bit. They're, you know, they're they're not going to look like they did in your home in North Carolina. I spent my high school years in East Tennessee, and my one of my college years over in the piney woods of East Texas. So I, you know, I, I love coniferous forests, but it's just. Uh, those particular trees are always going to be a struggle for us in the hill country and in San Antonio. Now, fortunately, there is an absolutely beautiful pine called the halopensis pine, which in many ways is a little bit bushier than the trees you're used to. It's not quite you know the the telephone pole look that I saw in Georgia last week or that I saw earlier times in my life but halopensis pine is a beautiful pine that grows very well in this area so spend part of your time trying to rehabilitate your introductions but if you if you want pine trees uh, go ahead this fall see if you can find some good halopensis pine and plant and uh, it's as close as you're going to get uh, to that North Carolina look, and and they're beautiful pine trees. They look like pine trees. They are pine trees, but uh, they are much much more tolerant of our soil. If you w- want something that looks something like a blue spruce, in fact, a lot of people mistake them for blue spruce. Uh, there is a tree called a deodor, D-E-O-D-A-R, a deodor cedar, uh, which grows reasonably well here. And uh, you can you can create that you know that piney woods look with a combination of those conifers, but uh, the ones that you have again heavy mulch is going to be the best thing you can do. Adding an iron supplement like zeolite's my favorite, green sand's my second favorite. That's going to help your trees out. And uh, regular deep watering, uh, they'll hang on for a while, but uh, they're not going to thrive the way uh, some of the halopensis would. Yeah, I think I think like you mentioned, um, they they did really well for um, 15, 20 years. It's kind, of, it's kind of old farmland that we have. Maybe sure, it's down into you know some things it doesn't like um, mm-hmm. now. But um, it, on the uh, on the zeolite, what 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 kind of uh, quantity or well, as, as far as mulch goes, uh, I'd love to see two inches of mulch pretty much over the entire root zone. Three inches wouldn't be too much. And, I mean, ideally, if you got pine straw mulch, that would be, that'd be perfect. But just a good, very inexpensive, shredded native material is going to do almost as good a job. And you can buy a little better quality material. You can buy what we call a living mulch. It has some compost mixed in with it. Or if you've got a truck and or a trailer, um, I know up in Kendall County where I live, we virtually give away the free mulch. Uh, here in San Antonio, the Bitters Road uh, brush area, 
uh, a very small loading charge is all you pay literally for all you can haul. So this doesn't have to be an expensive process, but uh, if you want to go out and buy a, a little better mulch, either in bulk or in bags, uh, you can certainly do that as well. But uh, if economy is uh, a necessary thing, then just any kind of shredded native material is going to be a good mulch for those trees. The uh, stone and soil mentioned um, maybe using pine bark mulch. Is that it, it is, uh, and they're actually called Site 1 now, I think, but um, the advantages to a more of a shredded material as opposed to a bark material, it's got more different things in it, and it is less subject to washing away. Now, washing away <laughs> is something none of us have worried about for several months now, but I have seen you know, in my years in the business here, a lot of beautifully beds that were just absolutely gorgeously covered with pine bark, and all of a sudden we get a real big rain, and all that pine bark is in the neighbor's yard or in the street rather than in place, where a more fibrous mulch is going to be uh, uh, a better as far as stability. And uh, pine bark is just you're you're just sort of a single source material when you're using a blended material like most of the mulches you will buy. Technically, you're getting a much better product because you're getting many more uh, natural products that are going to break down and and put a lot wider range of things back into the soil than just a a single source like pine bark is. Uh, pine bark is basically a byproduct. I know. Um, a lot of years, uh, you you drive by some of the lumber mills, you drive by some of the paper plants, and they're actually burning the pine bark out there because they're trying to get rid of it. So uh, it's acceptable, but it's not nearly as good as a good shredded native material, which is going to give you a, a more diversity of nutrients and just it's going to stay in better place when we do get back to more regular rainfall. Okay. Uh, and is there is there a compost? Um compost is compost is fine but uh I'm trying to keep your your dollar signs down here I'd rather see you spend the money on a few new halopensis pines but um if you ask for a living mulch you will get a uh, a a good blend of compost plus that shredded mulch material just tell them you don't want anything with biosolids in it Okay no biosolids and um the, I've heard um, you and the, the dirt doctor mentioned about uh, the root exposure. Does that apply for these types of, um, you know, stuff? Yes, yeah, it does. All pine trees, all woody trees. Now, palm trees are different, uh, but any woody tree, just the structure of the trunk is different. And you want the trunk to have air circulating around it down to the point where the roots start to flare out from the base. You're never going to see, I mean, uh, once again, I was last week on business in Georgia. They've got trees over there where the trunk's two inches across, or I mean two feet across, and the root flare is four feet across. Uh, you're never going to see that on a pine tree, but the tree will still be much healthier, you know, if you'll pull the soil back away to where you see the, the major roots starting to come out from the base. And, and you can you can do that by, by hand or... You can do it however you like. By hand can be a bit of work. 
Um, I actually got to see the best arborist I know was by the nursery yesterday and got in a good visit with David. But he told me he used to use an old iron hay hook, you know, to help bring the soil back away. Uh, if you if you want to pay somebody to do it, they're going to use something called an air spade, which is kind of like a sandblaster with no sand that uh, they can, you know, in a matter of minutes, do what it'll take you hours to do as far as safely moving the soil back away from the base of the tree without harming it. If it were me, I probably would start doing it myself, and if I found that I only had to remove a couple of inches of soil, I would do it myself. Um, I know of instances, you know, around this area where they, where the guys have had to go down three or four, in one case six feet down, to find the root flare. And if these trees got really buried initially, then it would be worth the money to pay somebody with an air spade to come in and blow it back. I doubt that you're going to find that since you and your dad this, did this work yourself. It's probably going to be a matter of a few inches, and as uh, um, long as you're not doing it in the middle of the afternoon, it'll just be good exercise. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, much how much is is appropriate? I don't. Uh, is it come in a bag and the zeolite? Um, yeah, and and how big in diameter are your trees? Uh, your trees that you still have? Um, they're they're pretty good size. They're um, a couple of them are you know thirty five forty feet tall. So mm-hmm. um, so the trunk's probably eight inches in diameter, six eight inches. Yeah, at least. Okay. You're, you're probably going to put uh, three to five pounds of zeolite around each tree. Uh, one big bag of it uh, is, you know, is probably going to be all you need to do all of these trees. Okay, okay. Um, and the, the, the other trees you mentioned, the halopensis and the deodar, they, um, you can find those in the, you know, nursery. It, they're not the easiest thing to find in the fall. It's much easier because people tend to use them as living Christmas trees. Uh, so uh, hot summer, in fact, I don't really think I'd recommend too much planting for July and even into August. But by the time October, November get here, I think you'll find your nurseries will have a much better supply of them. Okay. All right. Um like to ones that uh, uh, didn't make it. Well, very good. Greatly greatly appreciate your help. Well, it's always always a pleasure, and uh, don't hesitate to call any time. We can we can be of service to you. It's uh, love talking about. I I, you know I just love the piney woods, but I hop on an airplane and go to Wyoming when I need a fix. (laughs) It'd be it'd be fun to be able to create that in this area. So good luck with it, and call me anytime you've got questions. Always here to help you. Thank you much, Uh, Don. I don't have a live here. Let's get this break done, and we'll get back to more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening on a real pretty morning out there. Going to be warm. Going to be warm once again. I just hope that whatever's happening in the atmosphere, we keep having these little disturbances so that... uh, at least somebody gets a little bit of rain uh, out of out of this every now and then. Now, a few places around actually got a good little shower last night, and most of us just got lightning and thunder. But uh, anyway, there there is hope out there. Let's get back to the phone lines. Going to be Teresa and uh, Bob and Denise. Teresa is first. Good morning, Teresa. Morning. Good morning. I say some seeds last year from broccoli. Can I just plant broccoli from my old seeds? 
You can, but broccoli is not something that you would just go out and plant the seeds in the garden. Um, You will start, in fact, it's probably about time right now, uh, since we're getting toward the end of July, you want to start your seed indoors. You want to have your little plants up three or four inches tall before you set them out in the garden. So uh, short answer, yes, you can plant it from seed, but just don't go out and you know dig a row and plant it like you would uh, beans or cucumbers or something like that. You need to actually plant that seed, get some nice little seedlings started to be ready to put out in the garden. Typically, we start doing that toward the end of August, so it's about time to get the seed started now so you plant them indoors so the sun doesn't burn them up well so it's easier to maintain the water so the sun doesn't burn them up they still need bright light uh indoors though it's not like sitting out in that blazing sun in the garden uh you could start them if you had a place outside you don't have a picnic table or somewhere that you are outside regularly nothing at all wrong with starting your seedlings and keeping them in an area like that but you do want to keep them out of that intense afternoon sun if you have them inside they would need to be in a sunny window outside at a place that gets maybe sun in the morning and shade in the afternoon what about blue bond seeds that I save from the plants? Uh, blue, yeah, blue bonnet seeds are great to plant, but I uh, wouldn't plant them this early. We typically uh, plant blue bonnet seeds in October or November. Problem, uh, the reason you don't want to plant them now is you might plant them, we get a good rain and they sprout, and then it stops raining for another two months, and uh, the little plants die because they don't get enough moisture. So uh, if you're going to you know, kind of throw your seed out, that's a great thing to do. But uh, October, November, those are going to be the months we recommend planting blue bonnets from seed. Will they bloom the first year after they're planted uh, in the fall? If we get the right weather, if they get moisture, yes. Blue bonnets are what we call a biennial. In the fall, they make what we call a little rosette of leaves. They stay very flat to the ground, but they develop a good root system. They make a little flat, broad plant. Then the next spring, they kind of bolt up in the middle and put on the beautiful flowers. That's why we don't plant them in the spring unless we're planting plants. But when we plant in October, if we get the moisture they need, then they will sprout and make their first life stage this fall, and then they'll give you blooms next spring. Okay. That's my question. Thank you very much. Good questions they are, Teresa. Thank you for the call today. All right. Uh, Let's see. Let's get a break in here. Don't want to have to rush Bob or Denise. So let's get a quick break in. We'll be right back with more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. All right. Let's get right back to the phone lines. Uh, looks like it's going to be Bob and Denise and Red will be the next three callers. Man with a good, or I'm sorry, Denise is first in line. And uh, uh, Denise and Bob and Red, that's it. Uh, good morning, Denise. Good morning. How are you today, Bob? I'm off to a good start. It's uh, gonna be gonna be a great day, but another hot one. But hey, it's middle of July. It's Texas. Uh, I think we're fooling ourselves if we think it's gonna be any different. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I have a few questions for you. So, you know, watering is just crazy in this weather, and our, my I have some shrimp plants, and they're like two and a half, three foot tall. They're mm-hmm. just struggling. I can't keep them watered enough. If I cut them down. Will that help, and will that take away my flowers in the fall? It will definitely reduce your flowers in the fall, and if you want to trim them back 
go maybe a third you could do that but I certainly wouldn't give them any major trimming at this point uh, it's just that compensation point we talk about is so high they're just not going to have the energy left over to really regrow quickly um, if you're having trouble keeping them watered I would uh, increase the amount of mulch you have around them and they may not be as thirsty as you think. Uh, my rule on, especially on perennials like shrimp plants and some of the salvias and all, is that they're drooping in the afternoon. They're just drooping from the heat. It doesn't mean they need water. If they're still drooping the next morning, then it does mean it's time to water them. But uh, I've, I talk to an awful lot of people that are watering unnecessarily just based on the plant looking a little droopy in the afternoon. So uh, mulch them first. Uh, be sure when you water now that you water very thoroughly and deeply. But uh, I know our chair around the nursery, we're only watering them like every four or five days, and they're doing just fine. Okay, you're right. Sometimes they do. It's kind of like my Turk's cap. They look mm-hmm. droopier in the afternoon. They look a little yeah. better in the morning. Yeah. So, well, and, and if, I think about cutting those back as well, but they have more flowers up and down the stem, mm-hmm. so I wasn't as worried about taking away the flowers. I yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't cut back thinking you're going to improve the water situation. If you need them to be thicker and fuller, yes, go ahead and t- cut them back, do it lightly, but you're not really going to help your, you know, the, the transpiration loss is not going to be that much different. So uh uh, cut them back, but cut them back for the right reason. And and it's not, not water conservation at this point. It's mainly just to get a bushier, fuller plant that will, in the appropriate season, give you more flowers. And that would apply to everything from uh, indigo spires to all the different blue salvias to, uh, you know, many of the different woody salvias that apply to Turk's cap. Uh, lots of different things can certainly be trimmed lightly, but just no major pruning. Nothing over 30% of the foliage coming off at any one time. Okay, well, that's helpful to know. I have oak sprouts coming up all the time, mostly in this one tree. <laughs> yep. And I, you know, we weed eat them back. I don't know mm-hmm. what we should do. Trim them, cut them. I know you're not a fan of putting, uh, what do you call it, weed block. Yeah. What should we do? I feel like it's taking all the energy from the tree. Well, it's it's not really taking that much energy. It's what a tree does, what a live oak does when it's stressed. And 98% of the live oaks in uh, this part of the world are stressed, and that's why we're seeing so many more oak sprouts come out. And other than doing what you're doing, cutting them down, mowing them off, pulling them up, um, it's just if you're gonna have a live oak, you're gonna you're gonna put up with uh, with oak sprouts. Uh, just do everything you can you know to mitigate the cause of the stress and obviously we can't do a lot about the heat but uh, be sure the root flares are exposed be sure the trees have got the nutrients they need and a lot of folks will do something like plant asiatic jasmine around the trees because the oak sprouts don't show up and uh, from a distance it looks a lot like asian jasmine but uh, uh it's it's just the the side effect it's uh you know kind of like having people planting a crepe myrtle next to the swimming pool and then complaining about all the flowers winding up in the pool. If you're going to have crepe myrtles, you're going to have flower petals all over the place. And if you have live oaks, you're going to have to deal with some of the oak sprouts when we're in stressful times. And as you well know, we are very definitely in a stressful time this summer. Boy, we are. Okay, two other questions real quick. Um, When you're putting the mulch around the trees, 
Is it as detrimental, like I know dirt above the root flare is bad? Is it same mm-hmm. for mulch? Same for mulch. Not as bad okay. as dirt, but you want air circulation. Anything, you know, even wrapping the tree with these tree wraps and some of this other stuff they sell for various reasons. Uh, uh, sometimes planting a new tree, yeah, you've got to protect the trunk from sun scald, but anything that impedes air movement around the trunk will reduce the health of the tree. So it's a great thing to mulch, but uh, uh, just keep it out over the root zone and whatever you do don't do like the dummies in houston do they call it volcano mulching and they just make this this little volcano like mound up around the trees i was laughing with a customer about this yesterday Uh, a friend brought in a picture from houston of some well-intentioned landscape crew that had mulched all these trees right along the street and just for good measure that volcano mulch the telephone poles as well <laughs> and it was about the stupidest looking thing i've ever seen so no no <laughs> volcano mulching mulching out over the root system of the plants and i don't think it's going to help the telephone poles at all i don't think so either might actually bring them to rot <laughs> i, I right. want to plant some drought tolerant plants and I know that's almost kind of funny in this part of the world, but if I, I've seen some things, I'm trying to add color as well, but mm-hmm. it's hot in this area. I was looking at things like purple fountain grass or some mooly grasses or firecracker plants. I wanted some color, but mm-hmm. something that in time. And so what do you think of those or is there something else? And then when would I plant them? Well, realize that drought tolerant plants are drought tolerant once they become established when you first plant them you're going to have to water them as much or more than you know things that will not be as drought tolerant but uh given time there are lots of beautiful plants i've got in my own yard i've got pink skull cap i've got uh the what they call dwarf plumbago even though it isn't plumbago at all i've got uh some of the woody salvia salvia gregii that i order them three or four times a year in fact they look okay now and it's probably been six weeks since i watered them so there are things that you can plant uh, those are a few of them. Uh, a lot of the different salvias, especially the woodier salvias, Lucanthia, Lucantha, Gregii, those will become very drought tolerant. The skullcap is very drought tolerant. Anisacanthus, called hummingbird plant or a hummingbird bush, whatever, very, very drought tolerant. It's going to become a weed if you don't watch it. It'll sprout up everywhere, but uh, it, it tolerates things very well. Uh, firebush, uh, Hamalia is going to be very drought tolerant. It will freeze down in the winter. It doesn't come back in the spring until two weeks after you give up on it, but it always comes back. Uh, the big old beautiful pride of Barbados, uh, Cestalopinia, that's in bloom all over town right now, super drought tolerant uh, once it gets established. Um, if you're looking for you know things, uh, you've already mentioned Turk's cap. Realize there are three different colors of Turk's cap, so you can get some variety there. Uh, Beautyberry, American Beautyberry, uh, is showy because of its beautiful, usually purple, sometimes white berries that it produces in the fall. Yeah, there, there are lots of drought-tolerant things you can plant, but you're going to spend a bunch of time watering them at first. Uh, there's some of the perennial hibiscus uh, that make flowers that are as big as dinner plates uh, that once are established are very drought-tolerant. So, yeah, you've got lots of choices. Just do your research and don't be in a rush to plant because you're going to spend a lot of time trying to keep them going through the rest of the summer. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Love your show. 
I think we've got a list. Wendy, do we have a list of drought-tolerant things that, yeah, if you're ever over this way, ask for uh, our list of drought-tolerant. There's lots of other things I haven't mentioned, the lantanas and things like that, and we've taken a lot of the guesswork out of it and happily give you a copy of that if you come by and ask for it sometime. Oh, I'll do that. All right. Thank you. You're welcome, Denise. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, let's talk to Bob. We've got a couple of minutes till news here. Bob, if we need to hold you through the news and talk more, we will. Good morning. How can I help? Good morning. Can you hear me all right? Yes, sir. Okay. I got you on speakerphone so I can write. I got a couple of quick questions for you. I'll try and get them out quick. One of the things that I'm doing is I've got, like, my bath water and my, my sink water going out, and I move it around to different trees and stuff. Does that yes, hurt sir. anything? No, sir. Long as and washing machines the same as long as you're not using bleach. Uh, what you're collecting is what we call gray water. Uh, what comes out of the septic system is black water, and we don't want to use that. But uh, your your washing machine, your sink, your bath water, uh, all of those are perfectly acceptable and a great way to uh, use water for your landscape. The other thing you can do, most uh, of air conditioning systems, you will have a pipe somewhere near the outside unit that produces what is called condensate. That's the cleanest, purest water you'll ever find, and you get several gallons a day out of an average uh, AC system. I'm actually collecting them out of window units right now into five-gallon buckets and using that also. You're doing it right. Okay, my next question. Uh, I've got bad case of scorpions, and there's been several snakes around. I've got to crawl up underneath my house, and I'm an old fat man. So is there anything I can spread up underneath there beforehand to kind of drive the snakes and and the scorpions away, or am I just going to have to be real careful? Well, you're going to have to be real careful anyway, but if you get some liquid cedar oil, it's usually sold under the name of Cedar Repel. Uh, You can spray that around, and uh, that reptiles don't like it, and most insects don't like it. It has It's not going to cause you any allergies or anything, but usually it's by a company called Nature's Creation, and it's called Cedar Repel. Spray that up there, and that ought to do it for you, Bob. Uh, If you want to hold on, we can talk more. Right now, I've got to go to news here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Bob and Red and Cynthia. Start out with a man with a good name. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. I got a couple of more quick questions for you. (laughs) All right, sir. Uh, I heard you call uh, cherry tomato to be planted about this time, but I did not catch the name of it. If you want a yellow cherry tomato, my favorite is called Sun Gold. If you want a red cherry tomato, my favorite is called Sweet 100. Uh, If you want kind of a teardrop-shaped cherry tomato, my favorite is called Juliet, like the lady's name. Um, And if you want a high anthocyanin, more of a purple pigmented cherry tomato, there's one that is simply called Black Cherry. So Sun Gold, Sweet 100, Black Cherry, Juliet, all of those are outstanding cherry tomatoes. Okay, and what side of San Antonio are y'all on? Our nursery, well, you know where the airport is. Um, You know where the quarry market is? Sir, I'm in. I'm I'm way out of town in the country, about halfway between Houston and San Antonio. Oh, so I'm, okay. I'm not sure exactly where anything is. <laughs> okay. Well, we're north central San Antonio. We're about uh, three blocks north of the quarry and about three blocks south of the airport. 
Um, I, you were just uh, about two blocks off uh, 281, so uh, not too difficult to find. We're here 9 to 4 Monday through Saturday and 10 to 4 on Sunday. So when you come to town, come see us. We'll definitely do that sometime this next week. I want to get a couple of the lists that you've been talking about. So Happy to provide I'll see them for you. Sometime this week. Look forward to seeing you, Bob. Thank you for the call. All right. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Bye. Next in line is Red. Good morning, Red. Good morning. Uh, I am fighting uh, regrowth mesquite with a pair of lopers and diesel. Uh, how late in the year can you continue to cut and uh, spray with diesel? Uh, you can do it any time. I think it probably kills better while there's still foliage on the trees. But if I can find myself to only doing it during the you know, bright, sunny summer months, it would never get done. So uh, it's especially effective when the trees are in active growth. They're, they're pretty much, they're, they're hanging in there through all this heat, but uh, you can do it 12 months out of the year. And I have a question on uh, much, most of these have, you know, several uh, branches or stems coming up. When you mm-hmm. cut them, uh, you have those, it's kind of part of, you cut the stem and it goes underground. It's kind of of a root. Can yeah. you spray the tips of those two? I don't usually spray. I drench because you're you're wanting well, to get it on the roots. I'm... Yeah, yeah. I just I'm going to cut them back as low to the ground as I can. I use uh, you know good lopping shears on the smaller ones and use my you know good old uh, uh, steel chainsaw battery powered chainsaw on the bigger ones and then just cut them down as low as i can and then drench it depending on how big it is i might use a cup i might use a quart okay well that's what i needed to know i appreciate it thank you You don't get out in this hot sun it's a it's a thing to do morning and evening this time of year and uh um anyway call me when you have questions always here for you red that's right thank you so much you're sure welcome thank you goodbye All right, uh, let's just keep going here. Uh, Cynthia is up next. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. Good morning. I'm I'm trying to site a greenhouse I want to put up. It's 20 by 30 feet, and I want to grow citrus in it, but I'm afraid they will uh, burn up in the summer in there. Um, It's got a rich vent, but um, how can I site this thing so I might get a little... I don't know, shade in the summer? Well, you're um, you're, you're not really g- going to. It, the orientation of the greenhouse is not all that critical unless you're using lath strips. Now, if you're if you're putting like and uh, you know like we've done here at the nursery on several of our shade structures, we put lath up, which is sort of a permanent shading. And if you're doing lath, you always want the strips to run north-south because as the sun moves, you know, from east in the morning to west in the afternoon, you cast a moving shadow. If you run your strips uh, east-west, then you've got a hot spot, a shady spot, a hot spot, a shady spot all day long, and things are much more likely to burn underneath. So if you are using lath, which you may or may not be doing, then it's important to site your greenhouse such that you can put your lath on in a north-south orientation. If you're doing, if you're just using shade fabric, 
fabric, which is what most of us would be doing, uh, the orientation is really not that critical. Now, when you start talking exhaust fans, wet walls, uh, we're talking a whole different thing. But if you're just building a structure primarily for wintertime protection, uh, 20 by 40, you're going to have room for lots of things in there. But... Um, uh, I, I, I'm going to try to fit it to your property rather than try to get a specific orientation out of it. Now, I would suggest, and and once again, you're welcome to come by and take a look at what we've done with what we call our cactus and succulent greenhouse. We built it so that uh, our side panels, we use the uh, bywall uh, polycarbonate to use a real good quality material, but we just take them off in the summertime, put them back on when it starts to get uh, you know, cold in the winter months, and the way that I designed this, uh, the way we put them in and out, uh, there are probably 20 panels on that greenhouse. Probably takes uh, under an hour to take them off in the fall, and uh, I mean, under take them off in the spring. Probably takes not much more than an hour to put them back up uh, in the fall. So, uh, I think that is that is one way to do it that worked very well for us. And what we do in the early spring, you know, we'll take off, you know, a certain number of them just so we get good air circulation. And that way, if all of a sudden we're going to get a late cold snap, we can put it back on. Um, same thing in the fall. When we first start getting those northers, we'll put the panels up on the north side and maybe a little bit down the east and west side. And then when it gets really cold, we, you know, we completely close the greenhouse in and it's... Uh, uh, that it's a little bit of work, but it's uh, you know one solution. I just can't see creating a totally enclosed structure. I mean, you can put exhaust fans and things in, but uh, we had the experience one time with the big greenhouse we had uh, had a power failure, and the greenhouse went to 180 degrees, and everything in it burned up. So I'm much more in favor of doing it. Roof vents are good. Roof vents plus side vents are ideal. I grew up working in my grandfather's 100-year-old greenhouses. That's all we had, and we grew great things year-round. Um, do you use the wet walls or swamp coolers in the summer? Um, in in the case of growing tropical plants like orchids and things like that, uh, it is a help. On your um, On your citrus, I wouldn't go to the expense, and wet walls would take a lot of maintenance when you're in an area like this where we've got a lot of calcium in the water. Uh, it's going to take a lot to maintain a wet wall and an exhaust fan. Plus, for the wet wall to work, you've got to have your greenhouse closed up tight so that your exhaust fans are pulling air across that, that wet material, whatever you're using in the wall. And if you've got your greenhouse closed up tight, you have a power failure, and you're out of town, your greenhouse is going to get horribly hot. I like natural convective cooling. Uh, I do believe in what we call HAF, or horizontal airflow fans, to keep the air stirred up inside. And there's nothing wrong with having an exhaust fan. But a uh, swamp cooler, you know, a system with a wet wall and a cooler, uh, that's nice if you're going to be there to keep an eye on it, but it's going to be a lot more trouble to maintain. And does a swamp cooler need it to be airtight also? Not really. Um, a, a swamp cooler, the inside of a swamp cooler is kind of like what a greenhouse would be if you had a wet wall on one side and an exhaust fan on the other. But for a 20, for the size of greenhouse, did you tell me this was going to be 20 by 40? 20 by 30. 
20 by 30, uh, you're going to have to put like four swamp coolers in there to get much cooling effect. The other thing about swamp coolers is that, and, and this, is a, this is a mathematical thing, if you know what the relative humidity is and you know what the temperature is, you can use a table to tell you exactly how much you can degrees, decrease the temperature, how many degrees you can knock off the ambient temperature. If the humidity is high, as it frequently is in South Texas, a swamp cooler will do very little to cool that greenhouse down. If you lived in Albuquerque, if you lived in El Paso, uh, if you lived in an area with very low humidity, uh, then your swamp cooler can knock many more degrees off the temperature and keep the place a whole lot cooler. It's why you don't see many swamp coolers in San Antonio or Houston. It's because our humidities are so high they're not very effective. But now, if you want to, if if you want to move out to, you know, Alpine or move out somewhere like Marathon or somewhere like that, swamp cooler is going to be very, very nice. But uh, in San Antonio, it's not going to give you a lot of cooling effect. Just a good old exhaust fan to keep the air moving is going to probably be your best bet. Okay, and one question about heat. I'm considering um, heat coils under decomposed granite in the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about that for heat? It's a wonderful system. Um, I wouldn't go to the expense of using expensive fin tubing or anything like that. Uh, ordinary uh, PVC pipe, I would go with Schedule 40 pipe. I'd, I'd use a good quality pipe, but uh, it's it's very effective for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, it's nice to have a warm floor. I wish more of our growers, growers did that because you can start caladiums earlier, you can root plants better. Uh, you just put things down on the floor. Uh, as far as keeping the greenhouse a warm temperature, no. It's not gonna. It's probably gonna keep it above freezing, but it's not. It's not a way that we would use that for necessarily the only source of heat in the greenhouse. Now. If you're growing 100% citrus, you don't have to keep it, you know, at 60 degrees. Uh, 38 is probably warm enough. And if you if you do enough um, material in the floor or, you know, and a lot of people uh, uh, will put the piping and then they'll actually pour concrete over it. And then you use a boiler, uh, a fancy hot water heater, big hot water heater, or an actual boiler constructed for this purpose you use uh, a pump that circulates the hot water back and forth through the pipes very effective way to have a warm floor very effective way to grow things well but once again if we have the situation we had in uh, 21 when uh, our power companies who are supposed to do a better job left people for many many hours or days without any electricity uh, your warm floor is not going to say stay warm at all you're going to have to have some supplemental and uh, we ended up just buying a bunch of uh, freestanding propane heaters to put in since we couldn't rely on cps to keep our energy going so uh, they're just there are so many things to consider i hope i've covered some of the most important ones for you but um uh, building a greenhouse in this area is a wonderful, fun thing to do, but uh, something you really need to do as you're doing. Do your research on it and uh, basically forget about swamp coolers. Think about, you know, putting sides that you could roll up. I mean, the, the less expensive way, even though it's a higher maintenance way, what a lot of our growers do, they use a heavy-duty uh, plastic 
uh, material on the sides of the greenhouse, and there's a big pipe that runs the full length of the greenhouse and has a handle on one end. And in 60 seconds, they can roll the side of the greenhouse up, and in 10 seconds, they can roll the side back down. And um, not quite as attractive as, you know, doing some other things, but uh, it certainly is an efficient way uh, to keep a greenhouse warm in the winter, cooler in the summer, without a huge investment of money. Yes. Well, this is going to be the rigid polycarbonate mm-hmm. panels. Um, so I'm really thinking about how to open it up in the summer because there's just one door and a ridge vent, and then yeah. Well, if you're if you're ever if you're ever over in our neighborhood, uh, come over. If I'm not here, ask well, anybody, David or Austin or Wendy or anybody else, to show you where our cactus and succulent greenhouse is, and you can see the system we use to put those uh, panels on and off, which is quick and easy, and. Uh, do spend the money to get good polycarbonate. There's some cheap stuff out there, and then there are some really, really good materials out there that will last twice as long. And um, there are actually some of them that uh, have, uh, they're, they're made with sort of a built-in sunblock that would stay cooler than others. So uh, on on your polycarbonate panels, shop for quality, not just price. Okay. Thank you. You've given me a lot to think about. And uh, are you here in the San Antonio area? Well, no, actually, I'm north of Dallas. Oh, okay. Okay, well, there there are a lot of places around that can help you, but um, I'm trying to remember the... Uh, we buy from a company here in town called Greenhouses, etc., and I believe what we used is a material called Lexan, L-E-X-A-N, and uh, that was the best greenhouse polycarbonate we could find anywhere, and it has held up very, very well for us. But if you ever make a trip to San Antonio, ride by and look at how we've done it. Okay, yeah, I'm coming down that way to watch the the, the uh, solar eclipse. <laughs> coming in up on it in October. Well, make make us a, a stop on your way in or out. We'd love to show you around. Good deal. Thank you so much. Bye bye. You're well. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. All right, Don. Need to do a break here. We'll come back with more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSa and FM 107.1. All right, back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. Can be Debbie and Matt and Nancy. Debbie is first in line. Good morning, Debbie. Hi, Bob. Um, Good morning. I know you covered this. I know you covered this yesterday. I caught part of it. Something is eating my roses, cosmos, mm-hmm. and and berries. Nothing else. And I'm. Is it caterpillar or grasshopper? And, and are they using, go ahead I, I was using a, a combination of spinosad and bt but maybe i wasn't spraying often enough because it seemed like it stopped and then it came back do you have any idea if the damage is happening mainly at night or mainly during the day no i think it's at night Mm-hmm. can't find any leaf cutter ant mounds anywhere. Yeah. Well, it's almost um, certainly cata- almost certainly caterpillars then and BT is certainly the best way to stop the caterpillars. You'll make your BT about 
30 times more effective. And this was told to me by one of the chemists that actually founded one a big company. And he said, I don't know why. He said, we can't do it before we put it in the bottle. He said, but if you will add some molasses, any kind, whether it's grocery store or agricultural molasses, said, but if you will add molasses at the rate of about a tablespoon per gallon of spray, you'll make your BT about uh, 20 times, 30 times more effective. So uh, even if you're buying and you're ready to spray, unscrew that top and, you know, add the appropriate amount of molasses. It will make it more effective and it will make it much more, give it a much longer environmental life on the leaves so you won't have to spray it as often. But, uh, yeah, if the leaves are getting eaten at night, uh, it is most likely caterpillars. Could be rats or mice, but caterpillars are the most likely culprit. No, this is this is just stripping everything right back to the to the stem. Yeah, there's a big um, old there, there's a big old caterpillar called a woolly bear. Has kind of a black spiky hair all over it and has orange rings around it. I don't know where they go during the day. They get down in the soil or under the leaf mold, and they just won't find them anywhere. But uh, middle of the night, they're that out there. Yep. Yep, but uh, just spray the leaves. Uh, BT is a stomach poison. It doesn't have to actually get on the caterpillars, but they take a bite out of a leaf that has BT on it. They stop feeding immediately and die within a few hours. And those aren't the caterpillars that, I, you know, I hate to interfere with the swallowtails or monarchs. Well, uh, they're, the swallowtails, monarchs, uh, they're not the ones that are going to be laying the eggs for caterpillars. Uh, most of the caterpillars that are doing this are actually moth caterpillars rather than butterfly caterpillars. And I, I wouldn't spray, you know, don't ever go spray the whole garden. Spray only on the area that you're having the damage. And uh, most of the critters that are causing you problems are not going to have an attractive adult form. Just put it that way. They're ugly children and they're ugly parents. <laughs> okay. All right. I thank you so much. Well, it's always a pleasure. I thank you for the call, Debbie. And Matt is next in line. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Bob, Bob, can you uh, can you plant uh, winter squash and in particular butternut squash right now? Getting late. Um, recognize that uh, what are referred to as winter squashes are not any more cold hardy than summer squashes. Uh, uh, it's just it's a misnomer. Those folks up north that uh, do weird things, they, they name summer squash because you pick it in the summer and winter squash because you pick it much later in the year, but you can't let it freeze. So the big difference between uh, zucchini and crooknecks and summer squash and you know the winter squash you mentioned is the winter squash has a much longer growing phase. I mean, if I plant crooknecks today, I'm going to be picking, you know, squash in a month's time. If I plant, you know, a winter squash, many of those things take 120 days before they mature. So we're looking at the, uh, you know, end of November before those uh, squash are going to ripen. So if you're going to plant any of them, do it immediately and uh, next year plant them at the same time in the spring you plant your others uh, and that way you'll have plenty of time for them to mature. It's, it's not that they take cold weather. They do not take cold weather. They just take a lot longer to grow and produce a squash. Right. Um, well, um, it's been a long time since I've grown any squash and never grown any winter <laughs> squash. Yeah. Can you, give well, me the, can you give me the 101 and, and can I plant it in a uh, molasses 
Sure. Yeah, you can plant it in a molasses tub. Winter squash tends to, tend to make longer vines, so um, they're going to trail over the side of your molasses tub. And if they, you know, have flowers and consequently have squash starting to develop, you know, hanging up in the air, then you may have to get, you know, kind of constructive and... Uh, I know people that make little slings and things like that. They'll grow them on a fence or something like that. And then when you get that big old heavy squash sort of forming, they, they kind of make a little hammock that they put around it and tie up high so that the weight of the developing squash doesn't, you know, strip it off the vine. But most winter squashes have a small stem which means that you don't normally have the problem with the vine borers that we get with summer squash. So uh, that's an important consideration. Uh, if any of your winter squash do have a bigger vine than you want to uh, inject, actually use a syringe or use uh, one of these things they use to uh, inject juices into chickens you're cooking and things like that. But any of them that have a wider stem, you probably want to be sure you're not getting a problem with squash vine borers. But most of your winter squash have a narrower, tougher vine, and the squash borers aren't a problem. So uh, main thing is just plenty of sun, plenty of water. Uh, you, It's a good idea to periodically spray, especially in the growth phase before they start having flowers. Spray the foliage weekly with a uh, garlic juice solution. Garlic tends to uh, uh, retard a lot of the fungal issues that we sometimes get on squash leaves. Stop, stop using garlic by the time the flowers open, though, because uh, the squash do have to be pollinated, and the garlic is somewhat repellent to the bees. But... Uh, um, it's they're one of the easier things to grow, and uh, they're very, very successful. Like I say, they just take longer to mature. But winter squash, because of their thicker skin, can be stored for a much longer period of time. And uh, they're, you know, bakeable squash, whereas uh, you're, they're going to be a little bit differently prepared from a culinary perspective. But uh, they're just a wonderful thing to grow, and they're not difficult to grow. They are going to take more room because they do make a much longer vine. And like I say, the uh, and it'll tell you usually on the seed pack how many days to maturity. Uh, it's just that they you don't want to plant them too late, or they're likely to freeze just about the time they start getting good squash on them. Should I should I put a Texas tomato cage in, or is that is it going to vine too long for that? I, they're best, like I say, consider, you know, those squash may weigh, you know, five pounds or more each. And if they're growing up on some kind of structure, you're going to have to build a little sling or a little cradle or something, you know, when they, when the squash actually start to form. Nothing wrong with growing them on a tomato cage. Be sure you've done like I do and use a piece of rebar or something. Probably, in fact, use two pieces, one on each side, so that a tomato cage shouldn't fall over when you get these big old heavy squash growing on. On it, but uh, um, I I would say that that would be probably my lesser choice. Uh, I would if if I were gonna you know grow them in a molasses tub or something like that, I probably would take a little short piece of cattle panel, figure out a way to effectively stand it up. I just think they do better you know more on a fence type structure than they do in a round cage. But uh, either way, you. You're you're clever. You can figure out what the best way to do it. Uh, if it were me, I probably would put my molasses tub up against a fence or something like that, rather than having them freestanding out in the open. Just uh, you know, winter storms uh, starting to get into cold northers, things like that. It'd be nice to be able to really anchor whatever you've got the squash vines growing on. And I probably would do it by just shoving it up against the garden fence. Do you have a variety you like? 
Not really. Uh, most of them are, are simply sold as butternut or spaghetti or, you know, Hubbard, whatever kind you like. But, uh, um, again, it's not something that I grow regularly. Keep in mind that some of them are more ornamental. Some of them are more specifically baking. Spaghetti squash is an interesting thing in that you can cook it and then kind of scoop the inside out and uh, used in a lot of Asian dishes. Uh, absolutely delicious and wonderful things, but uh, just just be sure you got plenty of room for them and have a way to support them. Great. Um, one other thing, um, I guess deer will eat tomato plants. Absolutely. Okay. And, and so unfortunately... Yeah, they deer can't bite something off cleanly. They don't have incisors like we do. And the way a deer feeds, it grabs hold of something and then jerks it and pulls it and breaks it. And many times they not only eat your tomatoes, but they pull them out of the ground in the process. So uh, you do need to deer-proof your, your tomato area. Okay, well, so I made a big mistake. About three weeks ago, I was at that beautiful nursery on Sunset Road, and I, and I bought a... <laughs> I bought half of half of what I needed, half of what I needed. But uh, and Wendy said, if you're gonna if you're gonna buy them, you better buy them. If you see what you want, you better get it now. And and I only got half of them, and so I got half yesterday from another nursery because you didn't have celebrities, and and uh, and I left them out front in my four inch pots, and and uh, was watering them out front. And the uh, this morning, there's nothing left of them. I just well, I uh, you know, it's experience is a hard teacher. Um, uh, most of us get our tomato plant shipments on Thursdays or so. So if you're coming to see us or going to Phoenix or another good nursery around, uh, you're going to probably find the the best selection. Uh, and I don't know whether it be Wednesday afternoon or Thursday, but that's the time to shop. Uh, don't wait till the weekend. Well, the moral of that story is always listen to Wendy. <laughs> I wish she. I wish I had a speaker here so she could hear you say that. But uh, the one other thing I will tell you, we do for our customers is, uh, and and we don't in effect take an advance order. But if you call and say I need ten celebrity uh, tomatoes, if we've got ten pots back there, we'll set them aside and put your name on them. So uh, if you can't get over right away, just call and talk to Wendy and tell her to set aside what you need, and <laughs> we're always happy to do that. Hey, Bob, thanks so much for your time. Have a great day. You do the same. I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right. Uh, gosh, I guess uh, probably better get another break in here, Don, and then we'll move on and take some more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. It's going to be Nancy and uh, John and Rick. Nancy's first in line. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning. How good are morning. You? I'm good. How are you this morning? Very good. Good. I was given a rose, a mini rose bush. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm sure it's, it was from HEB or something like that. <laughs> okay. So what is the probability of it surviving? I think now? you I you take it? yeah you take care of it. It will. Uh, it will do just fine. Uh, most of the miniature roses, if you let them grow up, grow up and mature, they'll actually get 18, 24 inches tall. But and the care is the same as any other rose bush. You want to put them where they get pretty much full sun. Uh, you want to have relatively rich soil, regular water, regular fertilizer. 
keep in mind that that plant was probably growing in a shady greenhouse. So for now, probably want to leave it in the pot, put it somewhere that it gets strong morning sun, but not that just burning, blistering afternoon sun that we're enduring right now. And then uh, this fall, if you want to move it to the ground, you certainly can. In the meantime, just keep it well watered. Use some has to grow or good liquid plant food on it periodically. And uh, uh, they'll do just fine. Most of them uh, uh, grow quite well here. They are not grafted, so you don't have to worry about something else sprouting off the rootstock. But uh, um, I, they're, they're just, there are a lot of really beautiful colors out there. I find that the yellows tend to fade a little bit more in the Texas heat, but the pinks, the reds, the oranges, they, they make a real nice, compact little rose book, bush. They're not going to say that tiny thing. Uh, how big is the pot that you purchased it in? Oh, well, they gave it to me in one of those little, I don't know. Maybe four uh, inches? Really yes, yeah, probably just a small little one. Yeah. So now prob- I, re- I did repot it into a bigger one, but not huge oh well you did it just just exactly right just be sure you watch your watering on it and like i say bright light but none of that hot afternoon sun uh good liquid fertilizer like has to grow plant or something like that and uh you should do quite well with it do keep an eye out for the red spider mites they do get on roses sometimes this time of year but um, it, your your miniature rose will be no more problem to grow than any other kind of rose bush and it'll be absolutely beautiful well, and so then how does the coffee grains, uh, you know, do I use them? Will they help them? If you want to put a little, a few coffee grounds, you know, not a huge amount, maybe a couple of okay. tablespoons every week or two. And um, um, if it's from your own coffee pot, they use some pretty nasty stuff uh, in making decaf coffee. So I probably wouldn't use the grounds from decaf. Now, if you do like I do and you actually get bags of coffee grounds from Starbucks. Starbucks uses something they call the Swiss water process and their decaf of the grains or, or grounds are just just fine. But just stick to your your regular full strength coffee and uh, not not a huge amount, but a tablespoon or two uh you know every every few weeks is gonna be just fine for a rose bush. Okay. Well I give it a try and it's uh I can go ahead and do my cucumbers, right, from seeds, I can do yes, that ma'am. roll, like you mentioned earlier. Blah, blah, Absolutely. But do eight-week eight kittens uh, have a factor, I imagine, in the success, correct? Because I have eight-week kittens here, and I think they're probably going to get into everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they may slap things. They may chew on things. Uh, they're not going to hurt anything, but... Uh, if they're really rambunctious, <laughs> they can they can break things, but I don't think they're going to eat your cucumbers or your roses. So uh, you uh, just got a lot of entertainment to enjoy there. Yes, we do. We definitely do. They're, they're lots of fun. Thank you. Yes, they are. I, I appreciate all your help. It's always my pleasure. I appreciate the call. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, goodbye. Uh, Don, let's go and get our last break of the show done so we know exactly how much time we have to talk to John and Rick. We'll be right back. Sam read The Fish Finder like his favorite book. Said, Mark, you got bait on your hook? There's a big one down there. It's a Chinook. He gunned the troller. Gave me a look. He said, we're right on him. 
without missing a beat, you'll drop your line down to 42 feet. If you don't screw up, it won't be long. Someone in this boat's gonna sing Fish On. Fish On. Fish On. Oh, Don, you make me want to go fishing, I tell you. <laughs> we all know we've got uh, Mr. Don Cooper Stevens doing the engineering when we get a good fishing song for the last last break on Sundays. And that's another brand new one. I truly do not know how you do it. Uh, our purpose right this minute, though, is just a few minutes more gardening before Dr. Kirby comes in. And looks like John and Rick are going to be my two callers. And John's up first. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. I walked down to the gate to look at the rain gauge, and uh, I couldn't tell how much rain we had. I know it rained, and we had a lot of lightning, like you said. Yeah. But uh, Mockingbird had been sitting on the rain gauge, and I couldn't (laughs) find the rain in there. Well, uh, unfortunately, if it's like mine, it was was pretty dry. But, you know, hope springs eternal. Somebody got some rain, and uh, maybe it'll be our turn tonight. I hope so. We're, we're one day closer. But yeah. right next to that gate is a, a heritage oak, a couple of them. And um, I guess depending on the angle that you look at it, it's about six, seven feet in diameter. Wow. Okay, I, I've been having trouble finding somebody to brace it because it's leaning over the road. And uh, that's one thing. But the immediate problem this morning was I smelled a skunk out there. And lo and behold, here's a mama pulling some babies out i have a hole that's been i've been trying to close up for a while Mm -hmm. right at the base of the tree goes right into the main trunk right i've thrown dirt in there i don't want to use anything toxic but sure um, sure armadillos and skunks now Okay. Well, it's interesting. I had, again, David Vaughn is the best arborist I've ever known, and he's the guy I call when I have questions. And it's interesting. He was by yesterday afternoon, and we were having a discussion of trees with cavities and even fully hollow trees. And the arborists, the uh, people who do the research, have found that uh, even a completely hollow tree is 80% as strong as a tree with a solid trunk. So don't worry too much about the fact that it does have a cavity there. I mean, nobody wants to tangle with the skunk or have their dogs tangle with the skunk. Uh, maybe, you know, a little cedar oil or something like that, or maybe a little hot pepper. Those are things that would probably get Ms. Skunk to move on elsewhere. But... Um, I, I, without seeing the tree, and I'm not a certified arborist. I mean, I know a lot about trees, but uh, um, I, my suspicion is that if that tree is, you know, leaning, you may not be doing so much bracing as you are perhaps a little bit of weight reduction uh, just to reduce the chance that, uh, you know, that tree's going to break. I'd, I, I lost a good-sized oak last night, uh, and apparently the wind and the storm in this tree have been really leaning for a long time. And I guess it's ironic, as I was driving home yesterday afternoon, I said, you know, I better take some weight off the end of that tree because it looks to me like it's hanging a little lower. And when I went to leave this morning, that trunk had cracked, and I could barely drive underneath it. So uh, I w- it very definitely would be a good idea to take, get an arborist to take a look at it. Uh, how, where are you? How far away are you? I'm uh, between Belmont and Gonzales. Okay. 
Yeah, I doubt uh, my arborist uh, friend's name is David Vaughn, and unless he's got a good fishing hole over there, he probably doesn't go that <laughs> doesn't go that far. I mean, man, he's got his priorities in order. When he reached a certain age, he said, uh, "You know, I don't have to work this hard," so he just uh, went into consulting instead of actually doing the cabling, the bracing, the uh, you know all the work involved and so he's he is uh, a consultant but i love that because uh you know he has nothing to sell you except a bit of his time in your case he can probably point you toward a good arborist in your area so if i can keep scrolling up here on my phone in just a second i'll give you his number and i asked him yesterday i said david am i sending you too many people and he said no he said if they're outside my area and i can't get to them i can usually recommend somebody who can help them so uh, have you got a pencil there i'm i'm ready it's 210-788-4986 give him a call and uh uh, get ask him he who he would suggest in your area, but big tree like that bracing is usually not the answer. Um, if it's over a building or something like that, sometimes cabling is necessary. Sometimes is a good idea, but many times just appropriate. And this takes somebody who knows what they're doing. Appropriate weight reduction in the top of the tree is a lot less expensive, and yet just as effective in protecting both the tree and whatever's underneath it well i've got a real good man that can go up on ropes and and uh i know what limb has to be taken but boy it just breaks my heart it it was over a private road that is now a county road Mm -hmm. and if you've ever seen the way county and the utilities trim on trees it, yeah. it, i i get scared when i see a, a i yeah and be absolutely certain they're using pruning paint uh um you may have heard me say it before but one of my favorite new expressions is that uh artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity and uh, that's exactly what I think about when I see what some of our governmental agencies, the quality of people that they hire to take care of uh, very, very valuable trees. So uh, anyway, listen, I hope that helps you. Let me let me go ahead and get Rick in here before the end of the show, and we can talk in next week if we need to. But good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning. Uh, I have a question about pruning uh, some crepe myrtles. We have a about, they're about three years old. They're about 20 feet high, and they sit on uh, uh, each side of our driveway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to keep their growth down so they don't get really big. But uh, Davy Tree's been coming by putting in some kind of a – they said it's to help stunt the growth. It'll get more blossoms. But I want to prune them down. Is there a best time, and how far down can I prune the crown? Well, I, um, I I like pruning deciduous plants when the leaves are off of them because you can see what you're doing a whole lot better. So my preferred time to prune them is probably going to be roughly November to February. And uh, it is important that you don't just cut them back to a nonspecific spot or you'll just get a little bird's nest, you know, of growth coming out. Typically what you will do is take your longer limbs that or your longer trunks that need to come down, pick a point where you've already got a smaller limb coming out from the trunk, pointing the direction that you want it to grow, and prune just above that point. 
and you can keep the size down. Now, you're never going to make a Basham's Party Pink that wants to grow 35 feet tall. You're never going to make that into a four-foot tree. So um, any future planting you do, be sure and pick. I mean, we've got miniature crepe myrtles never get over two feet. We've got dwarfs that get five to six feet. We've got intermediates that get uh, eight to 12 feet, and we've got ones that make huge trees. So make any future selections based on what their natural size is going to be so you don't have to do too much pruning. Uh, yeah, I'd be very careful. Thought, Go ahead. We thought it was going to be a miniature uh, one. We asked that <laughs> planner to give us one of those, but they just great myrtles, I think. Yeah, well. How, 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 how high these things are going to get. Yeah, it's it's just hard to judge. Uh, but the time to prune will be during their dormant season. You're not going to interrupt flowering at all because they bloom on new growth. But uh, be pretty careful using growth retardants. They can be, they're not good for you, and they're not real good for the plants. And uh, you know, I apologize. We're just out of time today. If you want to talk about this more next weekend, I'll be in town both next Saturday and Sunday. But in the meantime, yeah, put off your pruning and uh, just do it right when you do it. 